This is 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Released twice per month, every episode brings you one step closer to cyber resilience by hearing how IT leaders are practicing cybersecurity. Resources mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes. If you're ready to take your cyber resilience to the next level, be sure to subscribe so you can catch every episode. Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here this morning with a friend of ours from Sentinel One, David Lindstrom. Before we get started, we have some really good content and really good questions asked Dave, but I want Dave to give us a bit of an introduction on himself, his expertise. Dave, tell us where you work and what you're doing today with Sentinel One. Yeah, thanks, Luigi. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm an identity and deception specialist for Sentinel One, and I joined Sentinel One via the Ativo acquisition last May. And what's interesting about those two things is TiVo started as a deception company. And in the process of following the attacker's evolution and staying one step ahead, that really evolved into protecting the identity infrastructures because that's where the action happens. And we're seeing that more and more these days. Yeah, it's interesting you say that the identity protection is becoming a huge conversation with our clients. It's always been there, right? But we see more of a conversation around it. Before it was taboo to talk about it because we thought it never happened. But the attack surface is huge and there's so many angles to cover. So yeah, we're really excited to have you on and I appreciate your time because I know you're very busy, especially nowadays. So tell us a little bit about Sentinel One just before we get into it. The product that you support at Sentinel One and you deliver for clients. Yep. As the identity specialist, we focus on protecting organizations from identity compromise, reducing the attack surface, detecting identity attacks early in the recon stage so they can reduce the blast radius improve time to recovery, improve the fidelity of alerts around identity compromise. So it's very complementary to the overall Sentinel-1 approach, which involves endpoint and XDR security. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. So today we're going to talk about some companies who've gotten hacked, specifically around identity. Uh, two high-profile attacks that we saw late last year were Uber and Cisco. So if you can double-click on those, they often sound very sophisticated, but can you, can you tell us a little bit about how unsophisticated those attacks were and what the impact was to both Uber and Cisco? Yeah, Luigi, these are two really good examples of unsophisticated attacks that leveraged identity in the initial breach phase. Identity has always been page one and 1A of the attacker playbook on a post-breach basis. So they're going to go after Active Directory to try to get domain privilege. They're going to try to enumerate Active Directory. They're going to try to dump local credentials. That's just what they do. But increasingly, we're seeing that identity is the initial breach vector. And in the case of Uber, this was an 18-year-old who bought an Uber employee's credentials on the dark web and then created an MFA storm, basically blasted him with MFA requests until he finally relented. And that allowed him to gain access. From there, it was a more traditional attack profile. So scan the internet, find PowerShell scripts that include PAM privileges. And as a user within the PAM, find sensitive data that you can use. And on both the case of Uber and Cisco, it's not so much about the sensitivity or the value of the data that they were able to exfiltrate, but it's just the approach that they took, which is really highlights the importance of understanding the attack surface around identities 
and then reducing that, protecting identities and detecting early. You said something interesting, David. You mentioned that this 18-year-old went on the dark web and just bought some credentials. In your experience or in your opinion, do those credentials have to be attached to someone with a lot of privilege within the organization or it could just be a basic user? It can be a basic user. And most often it's Joe from accounting that gets popped first. But once I'm in, then I'm a trusted user. So Active Directory, for instance, is more than happy to tell me lots of sensitive information. I can try to up-level privilege. I can try to see what credentials exist on disk, in memory, in registry. There's a lot of over-credentials that can be very useful. So it's most common that it's just a regular user that's the initial point of entry. So just a regular user. That's interesting because without pointing the finger at Microsoft, obviously we talk a lot about Active Directory because let's be honest, Active Directory is present in a lot of organizations. But what I've learned over the last year is how quickly someone can navigate through. And maybe you can just highlight that a little bit. Does Active Directory not do a good job of protecting the enterprise? Or obviously there's a lot of loopholes that come about, obviously. Yeah. Active Directory is really good at what it's built for, which is function. It's a directory after all. It's wide open to any domain joined user level account um, unless you take actions to the contrary. So it's more than happy to tell you all kinds of sensitive information about where the data resides, who the sysadmins are for those systems, what the unpatched systems are, who the domain admins are. It really allows you to plan your attack progression. And it's interesting, the data around the last pass breach is just coming out in the last couple of days, but that was a more targeted attack. They were able to compromise a developer account last August. They were able to steal some source code information and LastPass was able to eject them. So it didn't seem like such a big deal, but what we have found out is that they were doing reconnaissance in the environment. They were able to find where the sensitive corporate resources existed and who they needed to go after next in order to get the credentials to access that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I was about, that kind of leads to my next question. These unsophisticated attacks happen unbeknownst to a lot of users. Now, you mentioned the fact that that bad actor can get in and stay there for weeks or months to do all that recon work. And I think really that's what companies are afraid of, right? How long have they been there and what information have they gathered? Because the point of attack or the point where you find out that you've been breached and to backtrack that, how does a corporation backtrack to determine how bad they've been hit? Is that even possible given what we've seen here? It's not easy. Certainly on a Post-breach basis, scoping the problem is a big part of remediation, understanding how far it's gotten, what the initial point of entry is, where they still exist, and how to get them out are really the main questions that SecOps ask. The challenge in using identities is that if you've got someone who's acting as a legitimate trusted user, and that's someone whose credentials have been compromised or the same conversation for a malicious insider... If they're doing things that aren't particularly anomalous, then detection is a big challenge. Because if you have traditional EDR or XDR, you're able to backtrack or stitch events that happen. Now, again, in your opinion, does identity play into that? Is there any stitching that could be done from the endpoint to the XDR and backtrack that? Or has it become a lot more difficult because it is from a trusted person? Well, it's interesting. One of the things I mentioned with deception 
is that rather than reveal legitimate assets like local credentials or information within Active Directory, one of the things that deception allows you to do is to, to present deceptive responses to those types of queries. And in the process, you can lure an adversary to an authentic, legitimate decoy environment that protects legitimate assets in the process, wastes their time. They think that they're engaged with real treasures. But the other thing it does is it really allows you to capture the full attack path, the full tools, techniques, and processes that they're using and what their objectives are, because they're going to proceed as if things are going well for them. So you can really observe what they're up to. Is that what you call the honeypot? Yeah. Yeah. Honeypot is a term that has been around for a long time. And as I mentioned, the evolution of deception technology started as we're going to put this out there and see who's attacking us on the internet. Then on an internal visibility perspective, East-West communications moved into the data center and then out closer toward the edge where the action happens. And in the last several years onto the endpoint, as the point we made earlier, Joe from accounting, if he's the one who gets compromised, how do you protect on that and how do you detect on that? Okay, that's great. So you kind of answered my question about the unsophisticated hacks, because we often ask ourselves, how do they get in? But you've just outlined a few ways that bad actors can take advantage of seemingly innocent people and getting into the organization. Yeah. And I was going to make one more call out on the Cisco example. That was very similar. So in that case, it was a regular user and they compromised his Google account, which had cached VPN credentials. And besides the MFA storm that they used, they also called him as IT and said, hey, we need you to approve this so we can get in. My goodness. Yeah. So it's pretty gnarly. It's really you have to be extremely diligent to avoid that type of approach. Yeah. And there's so many things going on. You feel for the IT folks who have so many things going on in a day and sometimes he takes things for granted. And like you said, if it's coming from a trusted source, I can see how these things happen. I guess you got to just increase your vigilance or just increase your level of trust or decrease the level of trust and make sure that you're really seeing and then hearing what you're hearing from everyone around you. Earlier, you mentioned something about credentials for sale on dark web. What's going on with that? Is that a real thing? It sounds like it is. I hear more and more where credentials can be bought on the dark web. Talk to us a little bit about that. You're an expert in this field. So what's going on with credentials for sale on the dark web? Yeah, it's scary to think about, but there is an extremely active marketplace of credentials for sale in the dark web. And these are credentials that have been captured by various ransomware groups and threat actors over time. At any given point in time, there's dozens of forums for hundreds of these initial access brokers. And it's hard to put a number on because it's simultaneously both underreported and overreported. But one estimate I saw said that there was about 15 billion legitimate credentials for sale on the dark web today. So it's a low cost of entry. As we mentioned, the 18-year-old at Uber, that might have cost him a couple thousand dollars. That. If that, yeah. Yeah. And 15 billion credentials. You're talking about username, passwords. Wow. That's a lot of credentials for sale or available anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's really a force multiplier as a bad actor. If I can avoid all of the recon work to investigate your organization and who I need to target and you know how to get to them, if I could just buy it, then it really accelerates my ability to hit a lot of targets. 
Wow. Okay. And just off topic here, or maybe within topic, how does social phishing fall into that? Because obviously, once you have the credentials, does social phishing even have to come into play? If you have the credentials, do you need to bother about doing more work or is that you've cut the chase? Yeah, it can certainly complement the validity of an approach. You can do initial research to identify who to target, then as a bad actor, you've probably got better chance of success. As a corporate citizen, you also have to be really careful about oversharing on social media. That falls into two categories. One is just what you post on LinkedIn. So why make it any easier to advertise the types of systems that I work on and where my area of expertise is and those types of things, but also just being really careful about who you engage with. So if yeah. someone reaches out, your guard has to be up really high. There's an age-old thing about us sections on websites, right? Every corporation has their about us section and they give you so many details about who the person is, who the CFO is, who the CTO is, and who the CEO is. And they give you like a pedigree of all kinds of stuff, like all their experiences, right? And an email sometimes of how to reach them. Yeah. And that sometimes can backfire. As much as you want to be transparent with your clients and prospects, you might want to be careful what you're giving out there. Because yeah. you're right, that could be a negative impact for sure. While we're on the subject, staying off of LinkedIn is not the answer either, because if you don't have a presence, then someone will create one for you and use that against you. Oh, yeah. We just wrote an article very similar to that, what you just mentioned. We wrote in our newsletter where a company will go and find real job postings and then mimic that job and another website, recruit individuals, and then they'll fish them in and then they'll do some kind of money transferring scheme. So you got to be on guard at all times. So the more we can put this out there, I think as professionals in the field, I think it's our responsibility to at least advise the community. After that, you're on your own. You got to make sure you do your part. Like you said, as a good corporate citizen, you got to play your part as well. Yeah. And if the next question is, as an organization, if there's 15 billion credentials for sale, the odds are that someone in my organization is on that list. What do I do about it? At the end of the day, there's a lot you can do to make it harder to be the one that becomes the target, the successful target. Things like credential monitoring. So if you have a threat intelligence service, they'll often offer the service so you know for sure that you're on that list. And then normal hygiene things like MFA and the whole conversation around like password reset on a periodic basis. It's an interesting debate. Because if your password is frisky one, then 90 days, it's going to be frisky two and then <laughs> going to be frisky three, 90 days after that. So that's no better. That's way too easy to figure out the pattern. So it's better to have to have a password manager or have some type of secure password phrase than it is to follow an easy to detect pattern. Okay. You bring up a good point. I know nothing about cybersecurity. I meet you at a cocktail party and you tell me, Luigi, your password should be this. What is the golden rule given what you know in the industry? Like how long should my password be? How complex should it be? Yeah. And I'm not necessarily a password expert, but <laughs> what I think is a good rule of thumb is if you can create something that's both a lot of characters, which makes it a lot harder to crack through brute force, but also easy to remember, you're better off. So things like password phrases, for instance, Jack and Jill went downtown to buy a dog is easy enough to remember, but that's a lot of characters. 
That's one approach. The other is a password manager. Obviously, we hear about some recent hack of LastPass, right? That's a big one. So a lot of people had this fear now of password managers. And then obviously, there's a, the issue with the Google Chrome hijacking of passwords as well. So we've seen some situations, but in your opinion, those are still safe. Password managers in general should be safe. Yeah. What else are you going to do? You can write them on a piece of paper, but then that's not a good idea either, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, like at LastPass, for instance, it's interesting that by virtue of you know knowing who to go after, they used some fairly sophisticated techniques to get to him. So it looks like it was this home device, which shouldn't be allowed to access corporate resources. It's usually not part of the threat profile for organizations. They used a vulnerability that exists within a media server. And with that, they were able to install a keylogger and get the master password. And he was one of four people that, that had those privileges. So you can absolutely blame LastPass for... Um, not doing everything conceivably possible to prevent that. But at the same time, I think they will have learned that lesson and they will implement stricter controls as a result. Yeah, it's amazing how the bad actor was able to pinpoint who that person of privilege was. To me, that's the most fascinating thing. Once you get in, you, there's so much information you need to gather to make sure that's the actual person you need to hunt. And after that, once you know who the target is, and there's always a vulnerability somewhere. But to me, that's the most interesting piece is how do they know who to go and hunt. That takes some time. That takes some time in recon work. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And one of the objectives of identity protection is to detect when that recon work is happening early so that you can prevent the worst impacts from any type of identity compromise. And so that leads to my question. Sorry to cut you off there, Dave, but I have a couple more questions before we cut off here. But so how does a company avoid those tiny mistakes? Their top three things, top five things that you as an identity specialist would recommend to, hey guys, you got to do this right now to stop those tiny mistakes that maybe could lead to a cyber attack. Yeah. So a lot of the um, themes we've touched on already. So as an organization to prevent being the softest target for dark web credentials, for instance, we want to apply best practices. So we want to use MFA on wherever possible. So we want to subscribe to a dark web monitoring service, which could be available from your threat intelligence provider. Have I been pwned is a good one to get a snapshot of. And then as a individual, there's a lot of best practices that can reduce the chances of you being the one that is subject to a identity compromise. We talked about don't overshare on social media. Don't make it any easier to be found and to be researched. Don't use personal devices for corporate access. Especially if you're the dev engineer at LastPass that has access to the entire database. <laughs> you just had to throw that one in. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they learned from that one for sure. Yeah, it's not a best practice and it's usually not part of the risk profile for organizations, home networks and home computers. And the problem's gotten worse with work from home. Yes, the BYOD work from home, the hybrid workforce. Yeah, we've seen a whole bunch of new attack options for, for bad actors that the attack surfaces have become much bigger, so many more entry points, like you said. And that's why as corporate citizens, I think we need to be on the lookout at all times. Your point is well taken. And I appreciate those four or five points. I was going to add one thing to an earlier comment. So I try not to store credentials in Chrome whenever I can. But always ask me if I want to. I, know. I always try to clear my cache whenever possible. I try not to use keychain on iOS. It's not that I don't. I try to minimize the, the exposure that I personally have. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I've used the password managers and I continue to use them. But one thing I mean, made this piece of advice if anyone takes it, but I never like to include the actual URL of the of the website. So what I'll do, for example, if I'm visiting my bank, I'll put the bank in either an acronym or something, and then I'll just put the credentials in that secure note, basically. So I shy away from putting the actual URL because that could obviously give away. There's another layer. I don't know how valuable that is, but for me, I'm paranoid even within the password manager. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think we all learned the lesson. If you are a LastPass customer, then you probably want to change all your passwords. And uh, yeah, I know. So I, I'm not here to point any fingers, but that, that's been an argue, argument that's happening over the last few months. Ever since this has happened, I think people are like, it hurt their reputation for sure. They're a huge company and I know they're not the only ones who've been attacked. So I'm not here to attack them, but yeah, I'm sure it's impacted their reputation like many other companies who've been breached in that nature. Uh, Dave, we only have a few minutes here, so I don't want to keep you too long because I know your time is precious, but I did have one question. One last question, or perhaps I should have asked this at the beginning. So today in the corporate environment, what does it mean, identity security? If you can give us an umbrella, what does that mean when you're talking to a client or to a corporation? What does it mean to security identity in the enterprise? Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of excellent tools that exist in the universe of provisioning, managing, and controlling identities such as IAM and PAM, IGA, even MFA. Those are all excellent techniques to prevent an identity compromise, uh, but identity compromises are still happening all over the place. I think conservatively 80% of successful attacks leverage identity at some point in the kill chain. So there's this concept of identity threat detection and response. And the idea is that you're going to prevent the worst outcomes from an identity compromise, assuming the worst, and protect the identity infrastructure in the process. And that's where Sentinel One lives. What we do for organizations is we provide a comprehensive view into the risk landscape around Active Directory and other credentials, allowing you to reduce the attack surface, prevent identity attacks and protect the identity infrastructure. And it's an emerging space. Gartner put a white paper out in November about this, but we think it's an excellent complement to those more traditional types of identity security. The acronym ITDR, we've seen more and more of it recently. Yeah. So Gartner is recognizing it as its own independent space now. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. Gartner has been beating this drum for a couple of years. By virtue of the examples that we talked about today and some right. of the more macro trends, it's really emerged as a critical control that a lot of organizations haven't haven't considered yet. And in your opinion, and based on what you've seen, we have a lot of security professionals in the field. Is the ITDR domain still relatively new that the expertise needs to ramp itself up based on what we know? Yeah, it's an emerging field within identity security. As I mentioned, Ativo evolved naturally to be a leader in the space prior to the acquisition by Sentinel One. It's an excellent complement for the overall Sentinel One portfolio. So we want to build the walls as high as possible. But regardless of how they get in, whether it's through identity or other means, they're going to use identity from that point. How can you prevent that from happening? How do you protect legitimate assets and how do you detect that those activities are in process? And the question was about expertise. There's certainly some growth, I would say, in the industry 
to support some of these newer initiatives, but it's important enough, like this isn't a marginal risk reduction. We think this is a material requirement for organizations. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a material requirement. Dave, listen, this has been an honor. I've learned so much today. I'd love to continue conversation offline, but again, I appreciate you taking the time with us. ITDR is obviously a domain that is hot and on the rise right now. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. I will be putting out as many of the notes or maybe those links that you shared with us earlier. So some of the folks can obviously benefit from that. Um, Do you have any questions before we go for me? No, this has been fun. I appreciate the time. I love talking about stuff. (laughs) It's obvious the passion comes right through. Dave, appreciate your time. Have yourself a great day. And I hope the audience loves this. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Assurance IT is in the cybersecurity space, specializing in data protection and compliance. Since 2011, they primarily help mid-sized enterprises in Canada. If you have questions about protecting your data, reach out to us directly at info at assuranceit.ca or visit assuranceit.ca.